Good evening and welcome to KGNU Denver Boulder. It's The Economy. I'm your host for this week, Claudia Cragg. We have a very unusual opportunity tonight. We are speaking with the authors of a new book that doesn't even come out till February. But it is so appropriate for our times and so very well done that we asked Joanne Samuel Goldblum and Colleen Shaddix if in fact they'd give us a teaser, if you like, on this subject, because there's information on this that I believe people need right now. Now, the subject of your book is Broke in America. And to be honest, Colleen and Joanne, it's all anyone is talking about. Just to remind our listeners, we're in a situation, as you say, with many, many, many Americans struggling financially. And you point out that the system is broken and that poverty results from flawed policies compounded by racism, sexism and other ills rather than by, as so often we hear from some people, people's bad choices. How did this book come about? I'd like to hear who's who was the initiator of the book? So. I guess I I was the initiator, but you know, Colleen and I have worked together on issues relating to poverty in the United States for well over 10 years, wouldn't you say, Colleen? Yes. Yep. And so it really made sense. You know, we both, um, I guess, had a lot to say about this, and we come, um, as, as we talk about in the book, we come from different perspectives. Um, I'm a social worker and have, you know, done lots of direct service and uh, policy work and Colleen is a journalist. So in trying to write about what poverty in America really looks like, we felt like we could do this better as a team than either of us could do it independently. Um, is that right, Colleen? Yes, I agree with that. Um, you know, poverty has always been an issue that I've been extremely concerned about and active in. Joanne had more of a crystallized way of thinking than I did. Joanne really always focused on basic needs. Um, and when you do that, it becomes very hard to hold on to the damaging mythology that we have about poverty in this country, when you look at specific barriers people are facing to getting things like water and transportation, you see that the system was really set up to perpetuate poverty in the United States. There needs broad structural change. You both point out very clearly that COVID-19 did not create U.S. poverty. It certainly has exacerbated it. I mean, absolutely exponentially, but it has brought it into the light. It's a light we wouldn't wish shone on poverty, even if it's uh, even if it's very helpful, because the light shining now is blinding. Poverty is mm -hmm. everywhere. Streets are full of people who, through no fault of their own, are homeless who can't keep a roof over their head, who can't feed themselves. So what about the effect of COVID-19 on this situation? How bad is it as far as you, the authors of this book, are concerned? 
So I'll I'll start and let um, Colleen jump in. I think there are two really important points. One is, um, you know, sort of directly to answer your question, it's bad and has gotten so much worse. Um, you know, we have seen and heard, um, you know, from our member diaper banks. So, you know, the National Diaper Bank Network, which I um, lead, has about 230 members across the country. And what we've heard from them is that many have seen the need increase, you know, by numbers that you can't even imagine, you know, 300 times, 500 times, you know, crazy numbers. So the increase has been, you know, exponential. Um, But I think what's equally as important is that part of the way that COVID has shined the light is sort of the way that Americans think about, that U.S. Americans think about poverty. Um, All of a sudden, when we're seeing people who, um, generally speaking, are considered hard workers, you know, people who, who, through no fault of their own, you know, um, and and COVID, like um, sort of natural disasters that take place. People are incredibly generous when they feel like the problems people are facing come because of outside influences. And so what what Khalid and I really try to focus on is the fact that, yes, this impacts everyone in, in different ways, but even when there's not a disaster, things are really bad. Maybe it's a disaster. People can't ignore it now. Maybe is that the Mm -hmm. difference, Colleen? Yes. Certainly the suffering is more widespread than it already was. The Center for Budget and Policy Priorities did a survey in one week in November, and almost one in three adults in this country said that their household was having trouble paying its normal expenses. But I would argue that we are managing to it fairly well. Um, speak, Congress is fighting about whether or not to send cash to Americans. Um, and they can't seem to see the way to do that, even though we did it early in the pandemic, it worked rather well. Was it because the corporations were going to benefit and therefore that was the urgency to push it through? Um, you know, it's it's really interesting, and this is one of the things that I don't think we talk about that much in the book, but I think is is absolutely true, is that the way that many people who focus on the economy, you know, real economists think, people being able to pay their bills is not the way economists think about the economy. You know, so they see that making sure, say, for example, that airlines don't fail as bolstering the economy, not making sure that all employees of said airline are able to pay their bills. You know, there's just that disconnect that to me is so clear. And 
And I guess Colleen and I spend a lot of time saying, this is so clear to us. Why is this not clear to other people? Colleen, is it willful blindness? Yes, I think it's <laughs> willful blindness. I mean, one thing that we do talk a lot about in the book is that it costs a lot of money to get involved in government. Mm-hmm. You know, the AOCs are rare. You need a lot of money to get into elected office. And I, I'm not accusing people of doing something criminal or shoddy. I'm saying that if you want to be a member of Congress, you need to spend two thirds of your time talking to people who have a lot of money, two thirds of your time. Right. It's, it's like being in a nonprofit, right? Where Mm -hmm. it's all about fundraising. But uh, You mentioned the National Diaper Bank Network and you were founder of that. Poverty Mm -hmm. is, for example, not having personal hygiene products because you are so poor, not having a diaper for your baby. So if people really don't understand what it is to be poor, if you have a baby and you can't even afford a diaper, you can't even get a handout of diapers, that is surely something everybody can understand. Why don't they? Well, you know, it's funny because when I first started what was the, the, what is now the Diaper Bank of Connecticut. It was the New Haven Diaper Bank when I started it. And this is going back probably 15 years. We joked that, um, I guess it turned out not to be a joke, but that really diapers are a window into poverty that um, allow many U.S. Americans who can't imagine what it means to be poor. And when you actually say what that means is that you're leaving a baby sitting in solids for hours, you know, that that is a picture that we hope helps other U.S. Americans think, wow, we're not talking about extras. We're not talking about luxuries. A diaper is no one's luxury. Colleen? Yeah. And what Joanne's work has really done is illustrate the next step from that horrible deprivation. Okay, you can't put your baby in a diaper. That's horrible. That's almost heartbreaking. But that means you send your baby to childcare because childcare's require you to supply all the disposables your kid is going to need that day. Found that parents are actually work in school for want of clean diapers. So it, it which really kind of goes to the thesis book. You know, the idea that, well, you need to teach a man to fish. You need to somehow straighten out these people in poverty and make them have gainful employment. You can't have gainful employment if you don't have your basic needs met. You need to have the strength to work through food. You need to have the hygiene products to show up. You need to have transportation to get to work. And somehow when we discuss poverty, that those things don't come up. 
people talk about training. People talk about sort of changing people's mindsets and habits. And I'm not saying that that's never necessary, but if you can't put your kid in a diaper, you can't go to work. You just can't. Well, there's a horrid comment the other day by Jared Kushner about how basically people can just sort out their own situation if they want to. I won't quote it exactly because it's it's not worthy of it. But the idea is that people can get out of poverty. And of course, one of your biggest points, you talk about a lot about plumbing and the guy who had to flush his toilet with bottled water after the city shut it off to an unpaid bill. Well, that's one thing. But then you look at the Navajo people or the people in Flint, <laughs> Michigan, who didn't have potable water because of a hideous compromise of the water system. Uh, these are things that are systemic and you would argue racist. Colleen, you want to go first on this one? Yeah. You know, we talked to a number of people who weren't, didn't have any access to water or didn't have access to water that was safe to drink. In no case was that a white person. In right. no case. Um, I just don't think we would talk that level of deprivation among a number of white U.S. Americans. I will also say that water rights are a good way to get people off their land. Um, mm -hmm. It was very true when Indian reservations were being set up. They weren't given access to the water resources connected to the land. And, you know, we've seen in Detroit what is clearly an effort to gentrify, if you don't turn on the water in somebody's block, if you close down the public schools, if the fire department stops responding, they leave. And that's what's wanted for the, you know, quote unquote, new Detroit, where, you know, the success of this is, is important, but the success of longtime Detroiters is an acceptable price to pay. But isn't it worse than that? Isn't it that I would argue that clean water and access to clean water is a human right? I think in America, there's almost the idea that that is something when you get on in life and you buy your own property because you have to get on the property chain as a good American, you have to get your mortgage, you have to get in there with your bricks. That is something that comes with self-amelioration, with being meritocratic, with climbing the ladder. So, of course, some people don't have water. They're Navajos. Well, my goodness, they live on a reservation. So it's actually part of the fabric that water is not a human right. Drains are not a human right. Clean water is not very, very important for everybody. It's important for those who get on. Is that unfair of me? No, I, I don't think it's unfair. I think, in fact, what's true is that in the U.S., we don't consider that many things to be human rights for poor people, right? We turn off, as we talk about in the book, water, electricity, internet, you know, with COVID-19, how anybody could say that the internet is not a basic need, right, is, is crazy. But all of it comes at a very significant cost. And so, you know, no, I, I don't think you're overstating it. I think that 
we have found structural ways in our country to make it acceptable not to meet the basic needs of the poorest among us. And, and that really, um, and I appreciate you, you sort of pointing it out so clearly, that's really the thesis. You know, we've yeah. found a way to be comfortable well, those around us are not. As you know, Claudia, the United Nations agrees with you that water is right. <laughs> right. UN officials regularly come to this country and tour it and say, holy Lord, what are you doing? We, the UN is always us how far we are out of the pack when it comes to wealthy nations. And the mm-hmm. idea is that we have no floor. There is no level below which you cannot fall in the United States. We do not recognize idea of a common good. We've, we've become such wonderful, brave, rugged individualists that we, we think it's okay if our neighbors don't have water. And we think it's probably somehow their fault. Exactly. The fault thing. And then there's also the numbers of the numbers, 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 numbers. This idea that we set a level, uh, a financial level, instead of talking about things like water, diapers, personal hygiene products, etc. So we set a level of $21,720 for a family three, a family of three. So that is a sort of arbitrary figure. Um, and yet we know that because of COVID, I was actually quite shocked that only most people in this country had less than 1,000 in savings. I think almost everybody, except for about, a, you know, except for about 1,000 very rich people, uh, nobody has any money. They're maxed out on credit cards. They can't pay their rent. They've lost their job. They can't pay their bills. So the idea that anyone has any savings at all, what about the statistics as they play into your book, i.e. the definition of the level of poverty for a family of three and the lack of cash and the fact that I argue people have no money at all, nothing? You know, I, I think that there is a small percentage of people in the United States who have plenty of money. Um, you know, I don't know the exact numbers. Certainly, you know, people talk a lot about the one percent, and and I think that, you know, there is, I think, a, a pretty large number, not a large percentage, but a large number of people who who do have, um, you know, more money than they could possibly need. But I think you're right. For most U.S. Americans, even U.S. Americans who make what might be considered, you know, even three, four, five times the federal poverty level, they're still struggling. And as for the federal poverty level, you know, we write a lot about this in the book. It's a, it, 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 it's a measure that was established a long time ago, and it doesn't reflect the realities of what U.S. Americans need to um, function properly in our in our society. Um, so, how do they come out with that number? 
Oh, it's an ancient, ancient <laughs> calculation um, based largely on the cost of food, which has not gone at the rate that healthcare and housing have gone up. So, um, you know, what you pay for your groceries might not be that different than what it was 10 years ago, but your rent is certainly different. So there is something called a self-sufficiency wage that is being calculated for communities in the country. That's a much, much better baseline to work from. And also, I, I would add that it has to be calculated by community because, you know, living in rural Kentucky and living in Miami are very different prospects. So the point isn't whole dollar figure. The point is, can you stay fed, housed, clean? Can you do the things that you need to do to function? And for too many Americans, the answer to that question is no. Mm. Now, you interviewed a lot of people, and why I would argue that this book is exceptional and people should really look out for it, go to order it. Uh, it comes out February the 2nd, I believe. You interviewed a great many people for this book, and you have policies laid out and beautifully articulated, plus interwoven with real people, and not just interviews with those people, but little examples, for example, I'd like you to mention the toothbrushes, you giving toothbrushes to children who had none at home. How did you get the people to interview? That was a tricky thing to do. Indeed, it was. <laughs> so I did those particular interviews um, and I had actually set up with a high poverty school in Texas to spend some time there. Um, and then they cut out on me. So I called my mother-in-law who lives in San Antonio and she called everybody she knows and they called everybody they know. And eventually they got me to this wonderful woman, Carol Morgan, um, who's a Head Start worker down there. And she connected me to this district, Lytle, Texas, which is extraordinary. Um, tiny little place, 70% of the kids are in poverty and they don't go chasing test scores. They're much more concerned with making sure that kids have good social skills, making sure they have access to a washing machine. Um, and that's that's where we heard about the toothbrushes. Um, a Head Start teacher was in her room and the kids were all lined up to brush. Them. And she told me that she could tell which did not. Because the kids who didn't just scrubbed and scrubbed like crazy. That was their big chance. That was the time today they were going to get their brush. Yeah. And I, I have to say, you know, when at the beginning, when we talked about, you know, the, the genesis of the book, you know, Colleen's journalism and her really dogged uh, ability to find the right people to interview. She spent an enormous amount of time and, and effort. And it was really, you know, we really felt like one of the things that was going to make this book different is that we mm. wanted to make it clear it wasn't one community. It's not one place in the U.S. that is having this problem. This is what the United States looks like. 
and it's from, from coast, coast to coast. I must just intervene about your mother-in-law. You said she's in San Antonio. That has had a, everywhere is shocking, as we keep saying. But San Antonio, yes. Texas, how is she doing? Oh, it's terrible. She her late 80s. Um, the joy of her life is going with club and she hasn't done either since March. Thank goodness she's happy. Um, she has everything she needs. Human companionship. You say that uh, the issue really is basic needs. Water, food, housing, energy, transportation, hygiene and health. Again, these are not prioritized. These are supposed to be they're almost treated like luxury items. Yes, of course you have health care if you you know you have health if you're wealthy. Don't expect to have health care if you don't have a, a significant uh, job. You know, that's just something for the big people to have. Water, housing, food, energy. Uh, what about structural redesign? And do you believe that the Biden-Harris administration will be able to pull together implementation some of the policies you have in this book? Such a good question. Um, you know, we really hope so. Um, you know, we believe that while, you know, people say that ending poverty would be um, impossible. We believe it can be done. And in fact, we have um, a variety of things that we've written that we are trying to um, make sure that the Biden-Harris administration sees, you know, it's doable to end poverty. Um, you know, for example, in, in 2018, there was a journalist who calculated the government spent about $214 billion on corporate handouts promoting job creation. And then, you know, if you also threw in, um, say, the 1% paying a more fair share of their taxes, um, we could easily get to the amount of money that would be needed for a national job guarantee. And that would create a living wage job for every American who needed one. We can do it. And we have seen it in places to some extent. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's clearly possible. And I would add absolutely necessary right now, if we mm -hmm. want to dig ourselves out of the hole we're in from the pandemic and the accompanying economic downturn. Now, I know that almost everybody in the Biden-Harris administration is going to be significantly more conservative than I am. <laughs> I'm not proposing crazy pie in the sky stuff. We've done this. We gave people $1,200 and a lot of people stayed in their because The UCLA just did a study that linked 10,000 COVID deaths to evictions, 10,000. If we want to solve the pandemic, we should solve poverty. And if we want a thriving economy in the future, we should solve poverty. Because, you know, as, as we said, there are people who have these houses and have these SUVs or whatever, tremendous credit card debt and no savings. There will come a time when their bowing, buying power just disappears. Sustainable growth 
requires everybody to have their basic needs met at least. And and I would add to that that you know I just saw just before we got on um, the the phone for this interview um, that in New York State they are looking to add a three dollar a package fee a tax to be um, used to raise revenue. And the thing is that, you know, sales tax and taxes like this are regressive taxes. There is plenty of money if we taxed high net worth folks at an appropriate rate without adding $3 to every package you get, right? We're looking to evenly distribute the way that we, um, you know, collect tax dollars. And instead of being equitable, we're trying to be equal. And in fact, we need to be equitable. Part one concentrates on basic needs and part two forms of oppression. And you mentioned, I think, something that is increasingly a problem, which is mental illness in that that, uh, section of the book. Of course, mental illness is always very prevalent in most societies. And right now with COVID, there are people who have been coping with what they used to call normal life and in fact now completely unable to cope. So you talk about the insidious relationship between economics and mental illness. And I'm sure you'd both argue right now that is even more exaggerated and therefore more urgent uh, that it is addressed. I'll I'll jump in. Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you know, we know that poverty is a tremendous stressor that causes depression and anxiety for which people may or may not medicate themselves. Um, We want to believe that the homeless guy sleeping on the corner is there because he's messed up his life. and, And that takes away our responsibility we are going to be most conscious of the homeless guy who does have some mental illness, who's who's talking to himself in a loud voice or whatever. But what we don't into is, well, did he have that mental illness before he became homeless? This is he didn't. In many cases, it was the stress of the homelessness that brought it on, which is not to say that somebody who is homeless because they have mental illness doesn't deserve help. Of course they do. Um, But, you know, we don't have a culture that promotes mental health in way, shape or form. And actually, the the best example that I have is the study that Joanne and some of her colleagues at Yale did on did on diaper need and maternal depression. Right. And that that study showed us that um, among low-income moms in New Haven, this was a you know a study that was just that was done in New Haven. Um, m- people surveyed the mothers indicated that diaper need had a higher correlation to maternal stress and depression than any other material basic need, which was really. Um, surprising. You know, nobody thought that diaper need would 
impact individuals more strongly than food need or housing need. Um, and, and what we heard from moms over and over was that the stress of not being able to provide for their baby was so overwhelming and did cause this intense depression and anxiety. And of course, when you say it like that, you think, well, of course, any mom who couldn't change their baby when they needed to be changed would feel that. Lack of hygiene, it's just cruel. It's just cruel. And especially when a mother feels that she can't do anything about it. The good thing also about your book is uh, the solutions. Now, you have a summary of the policies being promoted within the US, and I'm very happy to say you have looked elsewhere as well. Give us a whole chunk of stuff of positivity, please, about the solutions that could be applied, could be applied right now going forward with Biden-Harris. We could actually turn the corner on all of this. Let's talk solutions. You want to start, Colleen? So, I mean, the picture is poverty is a lack of resources, right? And once you start looking at it that way, it's all very concrete. Um, there have been experiments universal basic income with guaranteed minimum income. Actually, Richard and, and Martin Luther King were both big proponents, right? so it's got to have some point for it. Um, and the, the $1,200 just that all American, pretty much all Americans got, is actually that. Um, and it, so perhaps we should do more that. Joe mentioned how very doable a national jobs guarantee is. You know, we have work that needs to be done in this country. You know, I mean, it's a classic New Deal solution. We we did it before. We can do it again. And and I would say another. I think thing that is really basic and could be done so easily is to raise the minimum wage. You know, if we raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, people working full time in the United States would not be living in poverty. And I think that that is an, an incredibly, um, you know, easy thing that we could do. Um, because poverty isn't a work problem. It's a pay problem. You know, so, so there's that. Mm -hmm. There also, you know, for example, right now, um, the National Diaper Bank Network is working with um, Senate leaders to try to add a $200 million um, benefit to pay for diapers for families impacted by COVID. And that, that, that is, um, you know, COVID relief money that we're talking about. But even beyond COVID relief, there are so many areas, you know, SNAP and WIC are chronically underfunded. It would be simple to fund them at an appropriate level. You know, no one in the U.S. should be hungry. And the fact that we leave SNAP benefits woefully underfunded, it, it, it really tells us who we are as a country. And I think many of the solutions that we talk about 
really have to do with changing who we show that we are. What about international examples? Other countries, why do we only navel gaze for solutions? (laughs) I don't know. You know, the fact that that liberal and socialism has become this dirty word. um, Yeah, you look at other countries and that's how we know it's doable, right? Because other places do it. We make a choice not to. And I think that comes to the back where we start. We blame people in poverty, mm-hmm. right? We, they deserve it and they shouldn't have what is mine. It's, it's almost spiritual. The, the gap between us and much of the rest of the world we don't see common cause with our neighbors. Last time I looked, neither Gandhi nor Jesus Christ were tech billionaires, but that's just, you know, I suppose that's an accident <laughs> of history. You, you said something very important. You said that everybody got this money, which brings up a very important other point. You People didn't. A large amount of people in poverty live in a cash society. They do not have bank accounts. They do not have credit cards. They probably don't pay tax because they don't make enough money. There are swathes of the country who got not a dime, not a sou, nothing because they are not part of the system. And it's that same system that ironically enables credit. People can spend far more money than they actually have because it's printed for them on paper. The whole issue of credit being part of the system, borrowing money to make money, as they say, which I think is a despicable thing in the first place. I wonder what you think about the cash thing right now. Of course, cash is dirty, potential COVID issues. We do not know the evidence for that is is not concrete. But what about the whole system of cash versus credit of money? People are cut out of money. That is a huge part of what you're talking about. Right. We we talk a lot about um, how expensive it is to be poor. It just is. Things cost more. We have set up a system where it costs less to buy things when you have more money, which when you say it out loud is crazy. But, you know, with, with diapers. So, you know, we, we talk about this quite a bit. Um, you know, if you can afford to go to a big box store, um, you can buy your diapers at almost half the cost as if you're buying them at a, um, you know, gas station or corner store or bodega, um, you know, because that's, that's the way we sort of set it up. So it's, it's so, um, you know, really disrespectful. Um, you know, and we also talk in the book quite a bit about predatory credit and the way that, um, you know, when people are poor, the credit that they get is not, it's not real credit. You know, it's not, um, 
it, it's not governed in the same way that, say, banks are governed. And what about yeah. payday loans? Sorry, Colleen, but I just want to interject. People have argued that it's people's right to get a payday loan at iniquitous interest rates mm -hmm. because after all if you're really poor and you don't and you can't get money you'll pay absolutely anything if you were going to jump in Colleen you know we talked to a lot of people who made what seemed disastrous financial decisions right they would buy a used car much more than worth on a loan with egregious terms. So why did they do this, you know, quote unquote, stupid thing? They did it because they didn't have the credit to get a legit loan and they still needed to go to work. They still needed to get their kids to date. So buy here, pay here, car to land to deed contracts to buy houses. All of these should not be allowed to be mm -hmm. carried out. However, are the only options people have. So when we do away with these horrible predatory options, we have to increase access to legitimate credit and legitimate right. resources. It, 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 it's got to be a both and. Well, here's a night in, uh, coming in on a, on a charger, Elizabeth Warren. I'm not seeing her featuring front and center in the Biden-Harris cabinet yet. Yet, she is the one who could <laughs> sort out all the structure. Do you believe that she will be able to implement any of her very sensible um, society leveling policies? They're not socialism. They're just taking care of people, things like payday loans that they, they are horribly macerated by in their finances. I feel like we should, you should be a third author on this book because certainly... Um, <laughs> You know, I think it's safe to say that we are, um, we agree on a lot of things. Yes, I um, very, very much hope that Elizabeth Warren does have a role in, in this administration. I think it is essential. I can say now, um, publicly, post-election, she was my first choice. Um, you know, uh, so, so I really really hope she is. I, I don't know if she will or not. Why do you think she would not have a role? If Biden-Harris is to be a policy-driven administration, uh, she should be front and centre and others too, obviously AOC. But is this to be a policy-driven administration? Do you get that impression today? I do. I, I do. I think that, you know, there are always politics. I don't know why she hasn't, um, we haven't seen her front and center yet. I have to believe that we will, because um, I do believe that both Biden and Harris have a strong commitment to being a policy-driven administration. I do truly believe that. And I think that they both clearly respect Elizabeth Warren. And so my hope is that they just haven't gotten to where she is going to be front and center yet, but that they will. Nothing that she's proposing is extreme. Um, right. I wouldn't call it extreme, but she's not proposing that. Mainly what Warren proposes is 
is honesty and transparency in financial agreements, which we lack. I mean, she's if you want to save capitalism, you should you should make some rules that allow everybody to play the game. And we've we've lost those. We have much lost those. But in fact, it's all a game and it's up to you. It's caveat emptor writ large. And if you come out the bad end of a deal, well, you're the fool, aren't you? You didn't read it properly or you didn't have enough legalese to, to work it out. Let's talk about the final chapter of the book, which I, I think is the most important. And you two are shining examples of your own work in that it's a guide to advocacy. You say some it's something everyone, everyone can and should do. Uh, advocates are simply people who refuse to go away, refuse to go away. Why does this matter now? Some people are thinking, oh, well, we've got a democratic administration. It will all be fine. Colleen, you want to go first? Yeah. So it, it, it won't be fine. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> administrations before, and we've always had an unacceptable rate of poverty in this country. Um, public officials always need to be pushed. I have worked on issues at the local and national, and I'm nobody special. I'm just a lady with a loud mouth and a laptop. <laughs> and I have helped change at all those levels. You know, there are, there's a multi-billion dollar industry in this country called lobbying. And are you have the same power they have? Nope. But you can do the things they do. You do the same electing and shaping of nation and build coalitions. And if you do it right, you win. I mean, you talk about starting a basic needs bank or working to supply your child's school with pads and tampons. Good action can be made even better by taking pictures of your supply drive and sharing them with your local news organizations or legislator with information about how pervasive period poverty is in your community. We know this, but people often sort of leave it up to other people. I think this is a human trait. I don't think it's because people are bad, they're busy, they've got their lives. But do you believe now more and more people are getting involved? I, I think more people are getting involved and I think more people will. I think that frequently people feel like their voice doesn't matter. And, and that is a big part of the reason we wrote this book. Because like Colleen said, we're, we're just two ladies. You know, we're two ladies who live in Connecticut. And we are both two ladies with loud mouths. But, you know, to, to make change, you just have to want it and be willing to talk about it. And I think COVID has really helped people to see that even more, that, that we are our neighbor's keepers. And in order to make change, we have to talk about it out loud. So I am optimistic that um, people will um, do more. Yeah, I think the political awakening, mm -hmm. you know, which we can thank Donald Trump. <laughs> I, I think middle class people could have gone through their lives and thought the policy really didn't affect them. When Trump became president, I had neighbors who worried about their marriages 
invalidated. I had neighbors who worried about relics being deported. I think the four years have been so bad that it's really mobilized people. And right, I mean, the word we keep using is woke. People woke up. Racism. And you point out in your book that majority black cities, including Detroit and Baltimore, are more likely to have high lead levels and other issues with their water, and that bottling corporations often pay less for water access than residential customers. Think of that. I'll repeat it. Bottling corporations often pay less for water access than residential customers. We have done a number of programs on It's the Economy here about redlining. Redlining again and predatory, that's with real estate, and predatory lending practices with mortgages have made home ownership and wealth accumulation difficult for people of color. Um, a lot of the work I have done is around reform of the juvenile justice system. Any sort of statistics you look at Kids of color are more likely when they get arrested, they're more likely to be when they're detained, more likely to be tried and on and on and on. And when you point out all these statistics, people will say to you, oh, it's not race, it's poverty. But when you control for socioeconomic status, it's advantage to be a kid of color. In other words, a middle class kid of color and a white kid of color, the middle class child of color is more likely to enter the juvenile justice system. So there is racism itself is a toxic actor in American society. And one thing that I, I have some hope for in my country is that we're starting that, but there's still a tremendous amount of denial and we have to get over it because racism like sexism, like phobia, in itself is harmful, regardless of a person's economic status. First off, you know, as to Bill Barr, he, he's, you know, I think actually it's kind to say that he's blind. I think he's, mm. you know, willfully ignoring the reality that has benefited him. And, and I do think that when it comes to racism in America, so much of it is driven by the fact that it is beneficial for white people. Even poor white people have a benefit from being white in the United States. And it's, it's hard. And, you know, as a white person, I will say, I, I feel guilty, right? I'm embarrassed that this exists and that our country was built on racism. You know, we brought black slaves from someplace else to do our work. You know, that's what built us. I think it's all hopeful to conclude. It's very hopeful. We're going to have a Biden-Harris administration regardless of all kinds of nonsense that we're going to see between now and Inauguration Day. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the case unless military law and a war with Iran magically appear. My problem is that we had eight years of an Obama-Biden administration and I had great hopes. Hope was the message and there were many fruitful changes, a great many of which have been undone. Luckily, DACA has just been reinstated. That helps mm -hmm. a great deal. But 
do you believe that there is now, perhaps because of COVID, enough of an impetus, perhaps because of the extremes of poverty, the cars lined up for the food banks, the people who have nothing to eat, the tents all over the streets, people have nowhere to go, no jobs, can't keep their body and soul together. Do you think this will propel the Biden-Harris administration into making real lasting change? Oh, I don't know. I would like to be optimistic, but um, I'm afraid that in the end, democratic administrations tend to become what, what we call moderate, which is in fact a little further to the right then would allow for what really needs to happen. So I have to be hopeful because that's what lets you get to the next day. But I um, am not overly hopeful. I don't know. Are you, Colleen? Well, I would say resolute. You know, it doesn't really matter that much for the interests of people in poverty who's in the White House. Mm-hmm. None of them have ever stood up for people in poverty. Right. We have to stand up, right. all of us. The only way the change is going to come, it's not going to come up, it's going to come from the bottom. Mm-hmm. I think the hope here is at least you have people who are, you know, somewhat could with the way government runs Mm-hmm. And willing to let norms come back into being that will allow change to happen. But that change will only be strong and useful and really promote justice if all of us get on the phone, get in the streets, get on our email and hold them accountable. On that very, very positive note. Joanne Samuel Goldblum and Colleen Shaddox. They're authors of a book called Broken America, Seeing, Understanding and Ending U.S. Policy. This does not come out till the beginning of February. This was a teaser. We hope you'll all keep your eye on it and get the book as soon as it comes out. It has some very valid points of view, some uh, many examples of activists and ways to practically implement change in our very own communities every day. Colleen and Joanne, thank you very much indeed for speaking to It's the Economy here at KGNU Denver, Boulder, Fort Collins. Thank you. Thank you, Claudia. This was wonderful.